0: podcasting behind enemy lines tonight's episode new insights into the priesthood and temple ban last wednesday night on august 23rd 2023 we did a show that dealt with some parts of this issue of the priesthood and temple ban this was bill's show he had a certain direction he wanted to go he gets to determine the framing and the content of the shows where he is in charge. And I think it's an excellent show, and I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to that. That's Mormonism Live from last Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. The point I'm making here is that I also do a great deal of research for the Mormonism Live show, even when it's not my show even when i'm not in charge of the show like bill was last week and as part of my research for that show i went back and i obtained and printed out the famous and influential lester e bush jr paper from the 1973 august edition of dialogue titled mormonism's negro doctrine and historical overview the reason this article ended up being so important is because it laid forth a basis for untethering the LDS Church from the temple ban and priesthood ban that it had imposed upon black people since the earliest days of Brigham Young's presidency. And indeed, we were to find out much later from President Kimball's son or grandson, I think it was his grandson, that he located among President Kimball's papers after his death a copy of this dialogue article and that indeed President Kimball had not only read it, he had marked it up and annotated it in his own hand so it does appear that this article played an important role in the lifting of the priesthood and temple ban by president kimball five years after the publication of this article which of course was in june of 1978 the same year that i joined the church as i say though in preparation for last wednesday's mormonism live show i read through this entire document i had never read through it before So I was grateful for the opportunity and the impetus to make me sit down and read it. And as I read through it, I found out that there were a number of things, perhaps the majority of things, with which I was already conversant, which I already knew, but there were also a number of insights into the situation which I did not know and which were new to me. It's those insights I want to share with you tonight. Now, on top of this, 25 years after this paper came out in 1973, Lester Bush wrote a retrospective article which was published in the Journal of Mormon History talking about the circumstances behind writing this article and the impact it had on him during that time as well as after that time. And there are a number of wonderful stories in that paper that I want to share with you as well. So let's get going on the Mormonism's Negro Doctrine and I apologize in advance for the use of that word that is the name of the article. This was not considered derogatory at the time. Obviously, Lester Bush is trying to write an article to pave the way for the church to lift the priesthood and temple ban, and so I simply chalk that up as an artifact of the times, the use of that word. What this paper consists of as an overview is an examination of the history of the development of the doctrines in Mormonism related to the priesthood ban and stemming from the early days of Mormonism when slavery was an issue. Now, this paper is divided up into four parts. The first part has to do basically with Joseph Smith's life. It ends in 1844, as does Joseph Smith's life. Picking up there, the second section of the paper extends through Brigham Young's presidency, which goes from 1847 up to 1877, but he'll round it off to 1880 for purposes of this paper. The third section is from 1880 to 1920, that 40-year period, And Bush says in his paper that this is typically the period of time that gets the least attention when it comes to studies regarding the priesthood ban. And yet in his opinion, and as he sets it forth, I tend to agree with him, this is perhaps one of the most important periods of time as it relates to the priesthood ban that we had today, or at least today meaning when Lester Bush wrote this article back in 1973. And the fourth period of time was from 1920 up until... The writing of this article in 1973. It is clear from the italicized introduction into the paper that this is something that was controversial even at the time and we might well understand why it was controversial. Here's what it says in the second paragraph of that introduction. In keeping with dialogue's commitments to dialogue, we have invited three individuals to respond to Mr. Bush's article from various perspectives. Gordon Thomason discusses some of the historical questions raised by Bush. Hugh Nibley gives a scriptural and personal response, and Eugene England gives his own theological interpretation of Bush's findings. Each of these statements suggests areas for further study, and together they reveal that there is still considerable research and thinking to be done before we have a complete picture of this sensitive matter, if indeed such a picture is possible. Notice the next line, which I highlighted. While some may question whether a discussion such as this is appropriate, Pause there. All right, so there are obviously people who question whether this study is even appropriate, whether we should be delving into this issue, even indirectly questioning or challenging the church's status quo. Well, obviously, the editors of Dialogue and Lester Bush, the author himself, felt that it was appropriate and they proceeded to do so in spite of some pressure that was put on them. and around the time to not publish this article going to this first period of time that Lester Bush analyzes there were a number of statements during that time regarding blacks and the priesthood or blacks and attendance at church or blacks and being preached to and whether that was an appropriate thing to do but he starts off this first section with a quote from W.W. Phelps from 1833 that goes like this so long as we have no special rule in the church as to people of color. Let prudence guide, and while they, as well as we, are in the hands of a merciful God, we say, shun every appearance of evil. So at least as far as W. W. Phelps was concerned, and at least as of 1833, the church had no special rule as to people of color. The paper then takes us through some of the difficulties that the Mormons had in Missouri, because of course Mormons as a general rule, start in northern states. You have to remember there are slave states at the time and there are free states at the time. And New York is a free state, Ohio is a free state, but Missouri is a slave state. In fact, Missouri came in along with Maine as states to the Union in 1820 as part of the Missouri Compromise, which you may remember from school was the law passed by Congress that in order to keep the balance even, at this point, there's an even number of slave states to an even number of free states. And, of course, the slave states are worried that the free states are going to get an ascendancy, or in other words, more people and representatives in Congress, and more senators specifically, in Congress than the slave states have. If that happened, then the senators from the slave states can overturn slavery, The slave states don't want that. The same thing's going on the other way around. The free states are concerned about the South doing the same thing. So there's this concern that there's going to be one side or the other who's going to get more senators into Congress and be able to pass laws against the other side. This is where the Missouri Compromise came in and said that anytime a new state is going to be entered into the Union, it cannot be one state at a time. It must be two states at a time. And one must be a slave state and one must be a free state. And that is how we will preserve the balance of power in the federal government. And as a result, in 1820, Missouri was the slave state that was entered into the Union. And at the same time, Maine was the free state that was entered into the Union. But then we have the Mormons who typically come from the northern states, the free states. But for whatever reason, God decided to give a revelation to Joseph Smith that Jackson County, the city of Zion, to which all saints should gather and a temple be built, all of that should be located in Missouri, a slave state. And I want to encourage you to go back and read this paper. It's easily accessible on the internet. All you have to do is put in Lester Bush dialogue and mormonism's negro doctrine and it will come right up for you in pdf version at least that's how i got it and how i printed it off as you know the mormons ended up getting kicked out of missouri taking refuge in building nauvoo in illinois another free state and so what ends up happening perhaps expectedly is that the position of the lds church and specifically of joseph smith and other church leaders fluctuates during this time period Initially, the church is neutral on the issue of slavery. Then, during the 1830s and the trouble with Missouri, Joseph Smith changes to appear to become pro-slavery. He's certainly anti-abolitionist. Abolitionists were the people from the north who wanted to free the slaves. So being anti-abolitionist was frequently linked with being pro-slavery, or at least accepting the practice for the time being. But then, after Joseph Smith and the saints relocate to Illinois, the church position changes once again to be unequivocally against slavery. So here is the summation of that first section written by George George Bush, written by Lester Bush. In 14 years, Joseph Smith led the church from seeming neutrality on the slavery issue through a period of anti-abolitionist pro-slavery sentiment to a final position strongly opposed to slavery. You see, there's that fluctuation of position I was talking to you about. In the process, he demonstrated that he shared the common belief that Negroes were descendants of Ham. But ultimately, his views reflected a rejection of the notion that this connection justified Negro slavery. So he continued to believe that black people were descended of Ham, but at the end of his life the last two years or so, he rejected that as a justification, that descent from Ham as being a justification for slavery. He concludes there is no contemporary evidence that the prophet limited priesthood eligibility because of race or biblical lineage. On the contrary, the only definite information presently available reveals that that Joseph Smith allowed a black man to be ordained an elder, and later a 70, of course we're talking about Elijah Abel's there, and later a 70 in the Melchizedek priesthood. The possibility has been raised through later testimony that within the slave society of the South, blacks were not given the priesthood. So what he's saying there is that it is possible that the church's position about blacks not having the priesthood may have been enunciated here or there But even if it were, it was restricted to those blacks who were already slaves in the South. In other words, black people, as a general rule, as long as they're men, right, could hold the priesthood, but black males who were slaves could not. And this is all about the political aspect of not riling up the slave owners in Missouri. The attempts to avoid that were not well executed by the Mormons, let's put it that way. And they ended up being kicked out of Jackson County, largely over this very issue. One surprising insight in this first section was how far back this idea goes that black people were descended from Ham. This is an old, old teaching, and in this article, Lester Bush dates it back to as early as 200 to 600 CE, or the Common Era, what we used to call A.D., Here's what he says, page 16, because of its later prominence in Mormon history, one particular argument requires careful attention, the belief that Negroes were descended from Ham. Though particularly common in the first half of the 19th century, this idea was actually very old. Recent studies have traced the association to at least 200 to 600 A.D., Jordan reports, and I think that's an individual named Jordan, a scholar, Jordan reports that early Jewish writings invoked Noah's curse to explain the black skin of the Africans. So whereas I had thought this was a Christian innovation, though I understood it was one that was very common at the time of Joseph Smith and even before, it apparently goes back and it was the Jewish people who came up with this idea in the first place, that blacks received their black skin because of Noah's curse on his son, Ham, In talking about Elijah Abel, we have this. Shortly before publication of the article on abolitionism, a Negro was ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood, that person once again being Elijah Abel's. It has been suggested considerably after the fact that this was a mistake, which was quickly rectified. Such a claim is totally unfounded and was actually refuted by Joseph F. Smith, yes, the president of the church or he who would become such, Joseph F. Smith, shortly after being put forth. We'll examine that a little bit more here in a minute. Elijah Abel was ordained an elder March 3rd, 1836, and shortly thereafter received his patriarchal blessing from Joseph Smith Sr. In June, he was listed among the recently licensed elders And on December 20th, 1836, was ordained a 70. So this is sounding less and less like a mistake and more and more like something that was intentional. And this is where he allows for the idea that perhaps there was a policy in place saying that black slaves could not hold the priesthood. He says, quote, it may be notwithstanding the lack of contemporary documentation that a policy was in effect denying the priesthood to slaves or isolated free Southern Negroes. This is... I believe Lester Bush's attempt to try and come up with some means of reconciling the several conflicting statements that are given during this time period. So to the extent that LDS leaders may have been suggesting things that sound like blacks can't get the priesthood, in the face of that, we have a black getting the priesthood. And therefore, Lester Bush sees that there must be or is likely some way of reconciling these two, which would have a more limited application then simply all blacks can't receive the priesthood and it may just be the southern blacks who are already slaves or possibly free blacks coming into a southern state. That's why he refers to a lack of contemporary documentation on that. He is speculating in order to try and figure out why it is they did it this way, why it is they said the things that they said. The one thing that is undisputable is that a black man, Elijah Abel, was given the priesthood on March 3rd, 1836, and on December 20th, 1836, he was ordained a 70. That is bedrock fact. And that will also become very important in the second part of the history of the priesthood and temple ban discussed later in this paper. Lester Bush then notes that it was in the year 1842 that Joseph Smith suddenly and unexpectedly did a 180 degree turn on his position regarding slavery. Having made a number of statements prior to that, which endorsed slavery or seemed to, he definitely and unequivocally reversed that position in 1842. As Bush puts it, the anti-slavery sentiment in the letters, these are letters that were published in the Times and Seasons, the anti-slavery sentiment in the letters was unmistakable, and their publication marked a virtual reversal of the published Mormon stance on slavery. When and why this change occurred is not clear. Except for the relative silence of the preceding years, there was no suggestion of an impending change. Some people wondered if Joseph Smith were simply being duplicitous. Bush addresses that as well. He says, A careful review of published sources, however, fails to reveal any evidence of duplicity on Joseph Smith's part. Rather, one finds consistent opposition to slavery from early 1842 until the prophet's death in mid-1844." And this is why Bush summarizes the church's attitude towards slavery during Joseph's lifetime as in 14 years, that's 1830 to 1844, in 14 years, Joseph Smith led the church from seeming neutrality on the slavery issue through a period of anti-abolitionist pro-slavery sentiment to a final position strongly opposed to slavery. So it goes from neutrality, To pro slavery, to anti slavery in the last two years of Joseph Smith's life. But now, Joseph Smith's life is over. He has passed away. There's a huge succession crisis. Brigham Young wins the majority of saints to follow him and the 12 apostles as they relocate out to the Salt Lake Valley. And in one of Brigham Young's most famous statements on the subject, and one of his earliest statements on the subject, and 1852, he makes it very clear it is his belief and it is the position of God that no black man can hold the priesthood. And beyond that, if any individual has even one drop of black blood in them, then that disqualifies them from the priesthood. Here's the quote. Any man having one drop of the seed of Cain in him cannot hold the priesthood. And if no other prophet ever spake it before, I will say it now. In the name of Jesus Christ, I know it is true. And others know it. So here, Brigham Young indicates that he has not heard Joseph Smith teach this doctrine, which makes sense because there's nothing in the available writings of Joseph Smith where he does teach a doctrine about blacks being cursed from holding the priesthood. In fact, the way he lived his life, he was aware of and was supportive of black men getting the priesthood. See Elijah Abels for one, and there were a few others as well. But Brigham Young is now laying down the law. It is perhaps noteworthy that Brigham Young does not try and trace this teaching back to Joseph Smith like he will with his Adam-God theory. He doesn't try and say, well, I learned about this from Joseph Smith in some kind of private conversation before Joseph Smith died. He doesn't go there. And indeed, he could if he had wanted to, but he chose not to. He makes it really clear that he's coming up with this idea on his own. He still believes it's true, but he's not tracing it back to Joseph Smith. And that's the significance of his line, if no other prophet ever spake it before, I will say it now. So he is tacitly, if not explicitly, telling us that this is his doctrine that he has received from God and he's going to make it the word of God through his own pronunciation. He being Brigham Young, as opposed to any alleged support from Joseph Smith on this subject. And in fact, after Joseph Smith died, but before Brigham Young became president, there was a short chapter that appeared in the Times and Seasons. And this article basically reversed the LDS Church's position on blacks and slavery, not from what it was in the last two years of Joseph Smith's life, but all the way back to 1836 when they were in favor of slavery. Here's what it says in that article from the spring of 1845 in the Times and Seasons. History and common observation show Noah's curse to have been fulfilled to the letter. The descendants of Ham, besides a black skin, which has ever been a curse that has followed an apostate of the holy priesthood, as well as a black heart, have been servants to both Shem and Japheth. And the abolitionists are wrong, are trying to make void the curse of God. But it will require more power than man possesses to counteract the decrees of eternal wisdom." So it was not long after Joseph Smith died, in fact it was only one year after he died, that the church's official organ, the Times and Season, is publishing statements taking the church back to its 1836 position when it was in favor of slavery, or at least was able to see it as completely justifiable by an appeal to the Bible. The paper goes on to talk about how it was that the territory of Utah was able to be formed Not as pro-slavery and not as anti-slavery, but simply as neutral to slavery. And that's how it came into the Union. This seems to have been important to Brigham Young because there were a number, not a big number, but a number... Of wealthy Mormons who came from the South who had slaves, and they wanted to bring their slaves with them to Salt Lake Valley. Indeed, the first group of Mormons to enter the Salt Lake Valley were accompanied by three Negro servants. And here I'm reading from the paper again. By 1850, nearly 100 blacks had arrived, approximately two thirds of whom were slaves. There was an interesting insight here because in 1851, which is only a few years after the Mormons have gotten to Salt Lake, in 1851 as the paper says by chance or design a number of the slaveholders were sent to san bernardino in 1851 to establish a mormon colony and in the process what happened to their slaves Well, their slaves became free. Now, this next bit is something that I was not aware of. While I was aware that slavery was permitted in Utah and that there were slaves that existed in early Utah, and by that I should say the territory of Utah, I was not aware of the legislation that was passed that would seem to restrict slavery from occurring beyond the second generation of slaves in Utah. Here's what I mean. The South had slavery as an institution and it was a perpetual institution. They could buy new slaves and they could breed slaves. They were always going to have slaves with them. It was never going to be phased out according to any law that I'm aware of in the southern states. However, in Utah, this is what the legislation said according to this paper by Lester Bush. The suitable regulations were shortly forthcoming and within a few weeks, Young signed into law Acts legalizing both Negro and Indian slavery. Though Negro slaves could no longer choose to leave their masters, some elements of consent were included. Slaves brought into the territory had to come of their own free will and choice. I'm not sure exactly how they would enforce that part, but nevertheless, they had to come of their own free will and choice, and they could not be sold or taken from the territory against their will. So that's interesting, but here's the next part that I found especially fascinating. Though a fixed period of servitude was not prescribed for negroes, the law provided, quote, that no contract shall bind the heirs of the servant for a longer period than will satisfy the debt due his master. So in other words, you can bring your slaves to Utah, but they have to come of their own free will. They cannot be sold to somebody else while they're in Utah, and they cannot be taken out of Utah against their will. They are to remain slaves for the rest of their lives. These slaves will have children, but those children of slaves, whereas in the South they would perpetually be slaves forever after, and their children, and their children, and so on, the children of the first generation of slaves, according to the law in Utah, are bound only to the master. For no longer a period then will satisfy the debt that is due. So the second generation of slaves end up being treated like indentured servants. Where you bring a servant over, whatever their color is, and you provide for them. And then they are required to work for you for a certain period of time before they are out of their indentures and can be a free person. Same thing happens to the second generation of black slaves in the Utah Territory. And once again, I am not unaware of slaveholders trying to inflate whatever the debt they believe is due to them to make them work as long as possible. I'm simply saying that in the statute itself, it does appear that slavery is not to be an institution in Utah, but was perhaps done more as an accommodation to those white men who already own slaves. The paper goes on. Several unique provisions were included which terminated the owner's contract... In other words, his contract to have a slave, which terminated the owner's contract in the event that the master had sexual intercourse with a servant of the African race. So if you have sex with one of your slaves, she's no longer a slave. Or if the master neglected to feed, clothe, shelter, or otherwise abused the servant, then that servant's no longer going to be your slave. Or attempted to take the slave from the territory against the slave's Will. Okay, you try and do that, they're not your slave anymore. Some schooling was also required for slaves between the ages of six and twenty. Now, by the way, I'm not here trying to portray this as a Shangri Law for black people in the Utah Territory in the 1850s. By no means am I trying to do that. All I'm saying is that if you compare the way slaves were treated under the law in the southern states versus the laws that were set up under Brigham Young in the Utah Territory. The law seems much more favorable in the Utah Territory toward black slaves than it does in the South, at least at this period of time. Once again, I'm not saying this is a great thing. I'm just saying it's not as bad as in the South. The earliest statement by Brigham Young on this issue that is located by Lester Bush in this paper is found at the bottom of page 25, and it is dated to 1849. Here's the paragraph. Brigham Young derived a second far-reaching implication from the genealogy of the Negro. Asked what chance of redemption there was for the Africans, Young answered that the curse remained upon them because Cain cut off the lives of Abel. Yes, that's plural, lives of Abel. The Lord, he goes on, the Lord had cursed Cain's seed with blackness and prohibited them from the priesthood. The journal history account of this conversation is dated February 23rd, 1849 and is the earliest record of a church decision to deny the priesthood to Negroes. So 1849 is when it starts, five years after Joseph Smith is dead and squarely from the mouth of Brigham Young. Though Brigham Young reaffirmed his stand on priesthood denial to the Negro on many occasions, by far the most striking of the known statements of his position was included in an address to the territorial legislature, January 16th, 1852, recorded in Wilford Woodruff's journal of that date. In this gubernatorial address, Young appears to both confirm himself as the instigator of the priesthood policy and to bear testimony to its inspired origin. And here's the quote that he begins this section with, in which we've already read. "'Any man having one drop of the seed of Cain in him cannot hold the priesthood, and if no other prophet ever spake it before, I will say it now in the name of Jesus Christ.' I know it is true, and others know it. This clearly, Bush says now, this clearly is one of the most important statements in the entire history of this subject. Now, whereas Joseph Smith had fluctuated back and forth on his position regarding slavery, Brigham Young was clear from 1849 all the way through his life, he never varied one jot, tittle, or iota on this subject. And here, Lester Bush steps out a little bit from his role as pure historian in this, to make a polemical point. And really, that's what he's trying to do. He's not just trying to put forth the history. The history is critical, but he's also trying to show where the history diverges from arguments that were being made in the contemporary Mormon society of 1973, and which he is trying to put down and show are incorrect and not supported by history. There's this idea That people were saying then, see if this sounds familiar, that, well, we just don't know why it was that God instituted the priesthood ban. We don't know exactly where it came from. It's kind of up in the air. It's all fuzzy. He refutes that. And he says, though it is now popular among Mormons, this is in 73, he could be writing today, though it is now popular among Mormons to argue that the basis for the priesthood denial to Negroes is unknown. No uncertainty was evident in the discourses of Brigham Young. From the initial remark in 1849 throughout his presidency, every known discussion of the subject by Brigham Young or any other leading Mormon invoked the connection with Cain as the justification for denying the priesthood to blacks. And here he gives several quotes from Brigham Young, 1852. Any man having one drop of the seed of Cain in him cannot receive the priesthood. 1854, when all the other children of Adam have had the privilege of receiving the priesthood, it will be time enough to remove the curse from Cain and his posterity. 1859, until the last ones of the residue of Adam's children are brought up to that favorable position of having the priesthood, the children of Cain cannot receive the first ordinances of the priesthood. And finally, in 1866, when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain. So Brigham Young was clear and consistent throughout his long presidency on the issue about blacks and the priesthood and why it was that they could not hold the priesthood, which had to do with The line of Cain, the line of Cain, and the line of Cain. Now, it was interesting to me to find out that Brigham Young had created his own theology around this subject to explain why it was he was saying over and over that not only can blacks not hold the priesthood, they won't be able to hold the priesthood until after all non-black people had the chance to accept or reject the priesthood. They had to have the chance before the first black man would have the opportunity to have the priesthood. It's one thing to say it, and I've certainly understood that that's what he had said. What I did not understand before was his theological underpinnings that he created for it. And basically, what it is is this. It's Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel. Well, from Brigham Young's point of view, he doesn't just kill Abel. Cain kills Abel and all of Abel's descendants, who would have been hundreds, thousands, and even millions, because these guys are at the top of the food chain when it comes to procreating the entire planet, right? So there's Cain, there's Abel, he kills Abel, he kills all those other people that Abel would have begotten. But in Mormonism, it's even worse because we have all these spirits up there in the premortal existence that are just waiting to come down and take a body. Well, when Cain killed Abel, according to Brigham Young, all those spirits got put on hold. Now they have to find some alternate means to come to earth to take a body. That's going to be a big backup in the plan. It's going to be a huge workaround, and it's going to take a long time in order to make that happen. So that's why, that's why Brigham Young refers to Cain as taking Abel's lives as opposed to just his life. And that is why Brigham Young says that the first black can't hold the priesthood until all non-black people have the chance first. I don't think it's a particularly convincing theological rationale, but I was interested in finding out that Brigham Young did promote it. Here's how it's put in the paper, page 27. Brigham Young further explained that those who were to have been Abel's descendants had already been assigned to his lineage, and if they were ever to come into the world in the regular way, they would have to come through him. In order that Cain's posterity not gain an advantage, the Lord denied them the priesthood, until such time as the class of spirits presided over by Abel should have the privilege of coming in to the world. So, that is actually a bit different than the way I had characterized it. It's similar in that all non-black people have to have the opportunity to have the priesthood before the first black person can, according to Brigham Young. But, It's not necessarily that all the spirits that were going to come through Abel's lineage have to go through another lineage. Here he says, no, they still have to come through Abel's lineage, which would imply that Abel has to be resurrected and then have that big do-over to have all those children, which is going to take a long, long time, and all those children have to be born through Abel's line and have the chance to receive the priesthood before black people can get it. That's why in a number of places, Brigham Young refers to this happening beyond the resurrection. The resurrection has to happen first for able to be resurrected. Okay, like I say, it's a bit contorted, not entirely convincing, and yet that was Brigham Young's rationale for upholding this ban, but for also promising that the day would come when eventually blacks would be able to have the priesthood. Now, as we went over on Mormonism Live last Wednesday night, June of 1978 was just too early. It was too early. It violated President Young's prophecy because the resurrection has not happened yet and all non-black people have not had the opportunity of receiving the priesthood. I'm glad it violated his prophecy. I'm glad that Brigham Young was proven to be a false prophet. I'm just pointing out here that when President Kimball lifted the priesthood ban in 1978, he did it not in fulfillment of President Young's prophecy, but in derogation of that prophecy. By doing the right thing, President Kimball proved President Young to be a false prophet. Here's one of those quotes about the resurrection from Brigham Young. When all the other children of Adam have the privilege of receiving the priesthood and all coming into the kingdom of God and of being redeemed from the four quarters of the earth and have received their resurrection from the dead, then it will be time enough to remove the curse from Cain and his posterity. That's one of those quotes where he Situates the time of blacks getting the priesthood to after the resurrection. And that quote appears to be from the Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, pages 142 and 143, given December 3rd, 1854. Now, when I joined the church back in 1978 and thereafter, it was very common to hear the explanation being given that blacks could not hold the priesthood or go to the temple because they had been fence sitters in the war in heaven. Interestingly, The first instance of this argument being made, according to the research of Lester Bush, goes all the way back to 1844. Now, this is after Joseph Smith has passed away, but not long. It's September of 1844. That's June, July, August. It's three months later. And Orson Hyde is now putting forward the idea that blacks were a disfavored race because of something wrong they did in the pre mortal existence. He doesn't actually come out and say they can't hold the priesthood because of pre mortal bad behavior, but he says everything up to, though not including, that particular conclusion. Here's what he says At the time the devil was cast out of heaven, there were some spirits that did not know who had authority, whether God or the devil. They consequently did not take a very active part on either side, but rather thought the devil had been abused, and considered he had rather the best claim to government. These spirits were not considered worthy of an honorable body on this earth. Now it would seem cruel to force pure celestial spirits into the world through the lineage of Canaan that had been cursed. This would be ill-appropriate, which I understand to mean inappropriate, putting the precious and vile together. But those spirits in heaven that lent an influence to the devil, thinking he had a little the best right to govern, but did not take a very active part anyway, were required to come into the world and take bodies in the accursed lineage of Canaan, and hence the Negro or African race. So, 1844, September, Orson Hyde, the first one to give us the basic building blocks of the fence-sitter or neutrality in heaven argument. Several years later, he was joined in this by the other Orson. In the Apostles, Orson Pratt, several years later, Orson Pratt also attempted to explain why, quote, if all the spirits were equally faithful in their first estate, they are placed in such dissimilar circumstances in their second estate, and concluded, among the two thirds who remained after the devil was cast out, it is highly probable that there were many who were not valiant in the war, but whose sins were of such a nature that they could not be forgiven." So Hyde and Pratt were primarily concerned with an explanation of the debased status of the Negro race in these early speculations, and not specifically with the priesthood. That's true, it is not specifically lying to the priesthood, but it will be adopted later on as a rationale for denying the blacks the priesthood. Brigham Young, on the other hand, did not feel it necessary to look to the premortal existence for an explanation to his denial of the priesthood to the blacks. Here's what he said. When asked if the spirits of Negroes were neutral in heaven, he answered, no, they were not. There were no neutral spirits in heaven at the time of the rebellion. All took sides. So he doesn't believe that there's any fence sitters or neutral parties in the war in heaven. They all took sides. So that's not the reason for this priesthood curse, according to Brigham Young. He goes on, all spirits are pure that came from the presence of God. The posterity of Cain are black because he committed murder. He killed Abel and God set a mark upon his posterity, but the spirits are pure that enter their tabernacles." So whereas Brigham Young does not vary one iota from his position during his administration, from 1847 to 1877 that blacks cannot have the priesthood, blacks cannot go to the temple, he nevertheless does not buy into this premortal fence-sitter in heaven kind of theory because he believes that all the spirits took sides in that war and every spirit comes into the world pure. It is not exactly clear how Brigham Young squared this idea with the other Latter-day Saint principle that we believe that men will be judged for their own sins and punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. But nevertheless, That was the position he held throughout his administration. In the fullest treatment of race to appear in a church publication in the 19th century, the Negro was characterized as, quote, "...the lowest in intelligence and the most barbarous of all the children of men, the race whose intellect is the least developed, whose advancement has been the slowest, who appear to be the very least capable of improvement of all people. The hand of the Lord appears to be heavy upon them." "'dwarfing them by the side of their fellow men "'in everything good and great.'" And that comes from The Juvenile Instructor 3, 142, published in 1868 in an article titled "'From Caucasian to Negro.'" Oh my goodness, and in the footnote, Lester Bush continues with the quote from this article, "'If it wasn't distasteful enough, "'it continues in an even worse vein, "'if that were possible.'" The author continues, quote, the Negro is described as having a black skin, black woolly hair, projecting jaws, thick lips, a flat nose, and receding skull. He is generally well-made and robust, but with very large hands and feet. In fact, he looks as though he had been put in an oven and burnt to a cinder before he was properly finished making. See what I mean about it being even worse in the footnote? His hair baked crisp his nose melted to his face and the color of his eyes runs into the whites. Some men look as if they had only been burned brown, but he appears to have gone a stage further and been cooked until he was quite black. Wow, that published in the official organ of the church, the juvenile instructor, back in 1868. Now, in expressing my shock and surprise over the language that's used in that article, you don't have to think me a Pollyanna who believes that this was not predominantly believed among white people in the United States at the time, in that century, and even into the 20th century. It is, however, a bit ironic when I consider this language in light of current statements from church leaders about how evil racism is and how the church denounces racism in all its forms and wherever it has taken place. I think this should be included, and I think the church leaders should include it by reference and read it and disavow it. Not just to say we're disavowing these things, this racist rhetoric, without actually letting the members know what that rhetoric was and why it should indeed be disavowed. Getting back to the legislation in the Utah Territory that would seem to be written and passed in order to limit slavery in the Utah Territory to the children of slaves and then not for their entire lives, but simply so long as they work in order to pay off the debt owed to the master, after which they must be set free. We obviously never got to find out how that worked because the Civil War intervened. You will recall that that legislation was passed in 1852 and the Civil War will begin less than 10 years later. And in combination with the Emancipation Proclamation, as well as the victory of the North over the South, slavery was abolished, including in the United States territories, which includes the Utah Territory. So slavery was abolished. It was done away with through the Civil War, not through the leaders of the church and not through the legislation that they had passed. But it did raise the question, how is it then that slavery was done away with by a Civil War and not by God himself. Remember, the rhetoric had been earlier on that God put this curse on blacks in order to demarcate them as those who should be slaves, and that it would require a power as great as God's to remove that condition of slavery from those who were descendants of Cain. Well, the Civil War did it. God didn't do it, but the Civil War managed to do it anyway. It freed the slaves, And so the paper continues on page 30. Mormon discourses during the Civil War convey the impression that the saints did not anticipate the United States surviving the war. Rather, the conflict was to spread until it had poured out upon all nations. Moreover, the expectation was high that the saints would shortly return to Jackson County and begin work on the New Jerusalem. In such a context, the entire slavery debate was somewhat academic, At least to Mormon leadership in Utah. Though war's end found the Mormons still in Utah and the slaves apparently freed, the belief persisted for some time that the peace was to be short-lived and that the saints would most certainly return and build a temple in Jackson County before all the generation who were living in 1832 have passed away. However, while the war had unexpectedly ended legalized slavery, President Young left no doubt of the impact on the Negro priesthood policy. In the same speech, he affirmed once again, they will go down to death. And when all the rest of the children have received their blessings in the holy priesthood, then that curse will be removed from the seed of Cain and they will come up and possess the priesthood. So what he's saying here, as I understand it, is that in some way, the curse of Cain was obviously linked to slavery. But in a similar way, the curse of Cain was linked in the Mormon mind, at least Brigham Young's mind, to the denial of the priesthood to black people as well. So now the Civil War comes along and it frees black people. And at that point, Brigham Young has a choice to make. Am I going to allow the fact that blacks have been freed to impact my belief that blacks do not have the priesthood because of the seed of Cain idea? Or am I going to double down on it and say it doesn't make any difference what happens out there in the United States because Brigham Young is still in a territory, far removed from the United States where the fighting was going on. Am I going to say that doesn't matter and double down on the priesthood ban? Well, that's what he did. What this puts me in mind of was back in 2015 When the church, after years and years and years and untold effort, work, and treasure being poured into the fight against the legalization of gay marriage in the United States, they finally lost it with the Oberfeld decision that was issued by the Supreme Court in 2015. And the church had a similar dilemma it had to face. Are we going to say that because we believe in obeying the laws of the land, that now it is okay for gay people to be married in the LDS church? and even up to impossibly including the temple. But let's just talk about being married in the LDS church and retaining good standing in the LDS church. Well, what they did was similar to what Brigham Young did. We don't care, they said, that laws against gay marriage have been ruled unconstitutional by the highest court of the land. We're going to continue to impose and even double down on our imposition that gay marriage is something that will not and will never be accepted or condoned or recognized in the LDS church. That's simply not going to happen. And that was the whole Basis for the policy of exclusion. That's where it came from. In a similar way, Brigham Young, after the Civil War, has a choice. Is he going to take the United States, of which he is a part, as a territory, and the fact that they have freed the slaves, which include all the slaves in the territory of Utah? Are we going to use that as a springboard to allowing blacks to have the priesthood, or are we going to instead say, we don't care? What laws are passed in the United States? We're going to double down on this here. It's not going to affect our policy on blacks and the priesthood. And I think you know as well as I do which way Brigham Young went. In fact, he went the same way as President Nelson. He doubled down. This is Bush's conclusion of his second period that he covers in his paper regarding Brigham Young. Through three decades of discourses, Brigham Young never attributed the policy of priesthood denial to Joseph Smith. Big point there nor did he cite the prophet's translation of the book of Abraham in support of this doctrine. Big point there. Neither, of course, had he invoked Joseph Smith on the slavery issue, nor had any other church leader cited the prophet in defense of slavery or priesthood denial. It is perhaps not surprising, then, that shortly after the departure of President Young's authoritative voice, questions arose as to what Joseph Smith had taught concerning the Negro. And that is the lead-in to the third section of the paper, which covers, as I said, basically from 1880 to 1920, which he, Bush, considers to be the most important time period in the historical development of the priesthood ban. And he makes this comment here at the end of part two that, Here's Joseph Smith. He's fluctuated back and forth on the issue of slavery. He doesn't appear to have had any problem with black men receiving the priesthood or blacks going to the temple. But once Brigham Young took over, very early on, he made it clear that blacks could not receive the priesthood. And he was hard and fast on that for the full 30 years of his administration. Now he dies. And what ends up happening in the next 40 years is very interesting. First off, church leadership has to keep confronting the issue. And why do they have to keep confronting the issue? It's because there are black people who are Mormons in the territory who want to get the priesthood. Elijah Abels, who want to be able to go to the temple, Jane Manning James, and they keep petitioning the leaders of the church on the question. If it were not for these black Latter-day Saints who continue to petition the leaders of the church on these issues, they would not have had to continually readdress it. And the way they continue to readdress it is over and over and over again, first under John Taylor, then under Wilford Woodruff, then under Lorenzo Snow, they continue to have to keep coming back to this question about whether blacks can have the priesthood, about whether blacks can go to the temple. And what they continue to do is they don't go back to what Brigham Young said. They want to go back to what Joseph Smith said. And they're casting about trying to find witnesses or documents or anything related to Joseph Smith and what he said about this subject. It is, of course, interesting that they do not appear to consider Brigham Young's word on the issue to be dispositive. And perhaps more surprising, from a faithful point of view, they give no indication of any awareness of any ability that they might have to just ask God themselves and get a revelation on the subject. That doesn't show up anywhere, at least I can't see it here in this paper. What they continue to do is not ask God for a revelation. I mean, they are prophets for crying out loud, but they don't feel they can do that. They don't ask God for a revelation. They don't go by what Brigham Young said. They continue to try and find out what Joseph Smith said. And the witnesses there are all over the place. By the way, we are now into the 1880s, which means it has been 40 years since Joseph Smith died, which means only old people, and in this case, old men, are going to remember or have any chance of remembering what it was that Joseph Smith said Their memories may be fading. It's been a long time ago, but there are a couple of individuals who will leap into the breach and will testify that in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith ordained Elijah Abel's to the priesthood, or at least sanctioned such, that this was a big mistake and that Joseph Smith really, really did not want black people to hold the priesthood. These two individuals with the really good memories of whom I speak are Zebedee Coltrane and Abraham Smoot. Just two years, now I'm going from page 32 of the paper, just two years after Brigham Young's death, so this would be 1879, a story was circulated that Joseph Smith had taught that Negroes could receive the priesthood. Well, that's an interesting theory because, yeah, he actually did. He may not have taught it, I don't know, but I think actions speak louder than words, so yeah. As these instructions were allegedly given to Zebedee Coltrane, John Taylor went for a first-hand account. So there's a, a rumor circulating that Zebedee Coltrane had said, that Joseph Smith had said, that it was okay for blacks to get the priesthood. So John Taylor wants to investigate this, and he goes to Zebedee Coltrane. When presented with the story, Zebedee Coltrane replied that, on the contrary, Joseph Smith had told him in 1834, that, quote, the spirit of the Lord saith, the Negro had no right nor cannot hold the priesthood, period, end of quote. So no, Zebedee is not saying that. Zebedee Coltrane is saying that Joseph Smith did not say that blacks could hold the priesthood. Zebedee Coltrane is saying that Joseph Smith said that blacks could not hold the priesthood. Going on with the article. Though Coltrane acknowledged washing and anointing a Negro, who was Elijah Abel, Zebedee Coltrane washed and anointed his feet in the Kirtland Temple in a ceremony in the Kirtland Temple after receiving these instructions, okay? So Zebedee Coltrane says, Joseph Smith told me blacks can't hold the priesthood, but even after that happens, allegedly, Zebedee Coltrane is washing Elijah Abel's feet in a ceremony in the Kirtland Temple. So he's confronted with this. It's like if you receive this direction in 1834, what are you doing washing Elijah Abel's feet? This is a priesthood ordinance in the temple in Kirtland, which would have been no earlier than 1836. And Coltrane's response to that is, in so doing, he, quote, never had such unpleasant feelings in my life. And I said, I never would again anoint another person who had Negro blood in him, unless I was commanded by the prophet to do so. Now, here's something else. Coltrane did not mention that he ordained Elijah Abel a 70 at the direction of Joseph Smith, question mark, but he's the one who ordained him a 70 at the end of 1836. Remember, that was December. Zebedee Coltrane, though he didn't mention that he's the one who ordained Elijah Abel, he did say that he was a president of the 70s when the prophet directed that Abel be dropped because of his lineage. Now, this is just allegations floating out there in the ether, but Zebedee Coltrane claims to be a first-hand witness to this and that even though Elijah Abels was given the priesthood even though Zebedee Coulter himself washed his feet in the Kirtland Temple. Even though Elijah Abels was advanced to the office of 70 in the LDS Church in December of 1836... He says that Abel had to be dropped from his position because of his lineage. This interview with Zebedee Coltrane was in 1879. Abraham Smoot seconded Zebedee Coltrane and said that he had received similar instructions from Joseph Smith about blacks not having the priesthood in 1838. So President Taylor went back to the Quorum of the Twelve the following week and guess what happened? Joseph F. Smith, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, disagreed with Zebedee Coltrane. Joseph F. Smith, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, disagreed with Abraham Smoot. Joseph F. Smith, who was the son of Hiram Smith and the nephew of Joseph Smith, said that Elijah Abel had not been dropped from the 70s because Joseph F. Smith testified that he personally had seen his certifications as a 70 issued in 1841 and again in Salt Lake City. Furthermore, Elijah Abel himself had denied that Zebedee Coltrane washed and anointed him, but instead said that Zebedee Coltrane was the man who originally ordained him a 70. You see, Zebedee Coltrane is getting sort of caught in the inaccuracies of his memory. Moreover, Brother Abel also states that the prophet Joseph told him he was entitled to the priesthood. So, Elijah Abel, being part of this fact-gathering effort by John Taylor, says that Joseph Smith told him personally that he, Elijah Abel, was entitled to the priesthood. Elijah Abel's patriarchal blessing was read, verifying, among other things, that he was an elder in 1836. The question under discussion was not whether the Negro should be given the priesthood, but rather what had been the policy under Joseph Smith. Now, of course, the policy under Joseph Smith is going to carry a lot of weight in whatever decision they make. Significantly, John Taylor, who was the president of the church at the time, but he had also been an apostle under the prophet Joseph Smith for over five years, added no corroboration to the claims of Coltrane or Smoot. Instead, he observed that mistakes had been made in the early days of the church which had been allowed to stand. And concluded that, quote, probably it was so in Brother Abel's case that he having been ordained before the word of the Lord was fully understood, it was allowed to remain. Going back to Elijah Abel. Now, Elijah Abel. He had the priesthood. He continued to hold the priesthood. It was not revoked from him, even by John Taylor, who said he thought it might have been a mistake at the time. It was not revoked. But because of the temple ban that was in place, as well as the priesthood ban, even though Elijah Abel was a member of the Seventy, he held the Melchizedek Priesthood. He was a member in good standing. He could not enter the temple. And so he petitioned multiple times to be able to go into the temple to receive his endowments and other ordinances of exaltation. Abel was convinced of his right to the priesthood and felt that he should be eligible for the temple ordinances. Consequently, on the death of Brigham Young, he appealed his case to John Taylor. Not only had the prophet knowingly allowed him to hold the priesthood, by the way, prophet here is capitalized P, it means Joseph Smith, not only had Joseph Smith knowingly allowed him to hold the priesthood, Abel argued, but his patriarchal blessing also promised him that he would be, quote, the welding link between the black and white races and that he should hold the initiative authority by which his race should be redeemed, period, end of quote from Elijah Abel's patriarchal blessing given to him by Joseph Smith Sr. Oh, actually, that's not the language from his patriarchal blessing. That's how he characterized it. His actual patriarchal blessing had come close to what it was, that Elijah Abel's represented it as being. And this is actually from his patriarchal blessing, quote, thou shalt be made equal to thy brethren and thy soul be white in eternity and thy robes glittering. Thou shalt save thy thousands "'Do much good and receive all the power "'that thou needest to accomplish thy mission.'" Well, that sounds like priesthood power to me, and it also sounds like the power that comes from the endowment, at least within the LDS framework. That power that comes from the endowment, it is called the endowment because it is supposed to be an endowment of power, and it is supposed to be given to those before they head out on their missions. In spite of all this, John Taylor upheld Brigham Young's ruling. Undaunted, Abel repeatedly renewed his application until Taylor referred the case to the Quorum of the Twelve, who sustained the President's decision. In 1883, John Taylor finally called the 73-year-old Elijah Abel on a mission, from the third Quorum of the Seventy, to which he had been ordained some 46 years prior. After a year on his mission, Abel became ill and returned to Utah, where he died December 25, Christmas Day, 1884, with Elijah Abel's death, the church lost the only tangible evidence of priesthood Negro policy under Joseph Smith. But this is where Jane Manning James enters the picture because although she understands she can't have the priesthood because she's a woman, she still wants to be able to go into the temple like the other non-black women. Even after his death, Elijah Abel continued to be a recurring problem for the church leadership, particularly when they reconsidered Joseph Smith's alleged teachings on the subject. Ten years later, Wilford Woodruff was faced with repeated applications for temple ordinances from another black Mormon, Jane James. That's how it's spelled here. Jane Manning James is how I'm used to it. He eventually took the matter to the quorum, and asked the brethren if they had any ideas favorable to her race. So this is now Wilford Woodruff as president of the church, going to the Quorum of the Twelve. Once again, Joseph F. Smith, still a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, once again Joseph F. Smith pointed out that Elijah Abel had been ordained a 70 under the direction of the prophet Joseph Smith. However, on this occasion, a new voice was heard. George Q. Cannon is now going to come out of the woodwork inside with Abraham Smoot and Zebedee Coltrane. George Q. Cannon countered Joseph F. Smith with the pronouncement that Joseph Smith had taught this doctrine, and here's the quote, that the seed of Cain could not receive the priesthood nor act in any offices of the priesthood until the seed of Abel should come forward and take precedence over Cain's offspring and that any white man who mingled his seed with that of Cain should be killed and thus prevent any of the seed of Cain coming in possession of the priesthood. So this is what George Q. Cannon is now coming forward and adding to the discussion. He's now saying this is what he heard Joseph Smith teach, which by the way, sounds an awful lot like what Brigham Young taught. It doesn't sound anything like what Joseph Smith ever taught that we have in the historical record, but it does sound like what Brigham Young taught. And so what I see this as is George Buchanan doing in this case what it was that Brigham Young was not willing to do was to trace it back to Joseph Smith and to essentially take Brigham Young's position and even some of Brigham Young's own words and sentiments and put them in the mouth of Joseph Smith in order to show that it really is from God this was startling information even Wilford Woodruff apostle under the prophet for 5 years had said nothing about Joseph Smith's views Actually, it was not firsthand information that George Q. Cannon was relating. It sounds like it is, but later on, under further questioning, they find out, no, he didn't actually hear this from Joseph Smith. When Cannon repeated these sentiments in the year 1900, it had become, quote, he understood that the prophet had said. Perhaps more than any other during this time, George Q. Cannon's confident pronouncements influenced church decisions on the Negro. But notwithstanding George Q. Cannon's assertions about what Joseph Smith had said, the council was never presented with a direct quotation from Joseph Smith, nor is there any record of Presidents Taylor or Wilford Woodruff, both apostles under Joseph Smith, citing the prophet as author of the priesthood policy. And now something really unusual happens. It is a mystery in the historical record because what we've seen is Zebedee Coltrane and Abraham Smoot coming forward and saying hey Joseph Smith told me back you know 40 50 years ago that blacks are not to have the priesthood and Joseph F. Smith keeps countering with but Joseph Smith sanctioned the ordaining of a black man to the priesthood so how could it be that he's saying one thing to you in private which there's no record of anywhere else except for you're saying it now that that's what he told you how is it that Joseph Smith? Ordained a black man to the priesthood. That makes no sense. Actions do speak louder than words. But now Joseph F. Smith is gaining in ascendancy in the Quorum of the Twelve, and he's headed toward becoming the president of the church. This issue continues to be revisited over and over again on a periodic basis in order to try and figure out what it was that was going on with Joseph Smith, the original. And so we might expect that when Joseph F. Smith becomes president, he's going to have control of the church. He knows that Joseph Smith ordained a black man to the priesthood, so he will finally be the guy who sets everything in order, undoes this problem that's crept into the LDS church, this racist policy against black people, and he will be the man to overturn it because he knows what's up. And he has the courage of his convictions, enough to stand up against Zebedee Coltrane and Abraham Smoot, In earlier years when they're saying that Joseph Smith told them blacks could not hold the priesthood. The problem is is that in 1908 Joseph F. Smith does a complete reversal on his position. This is the mystery. We know that he did a complete reversal on his position about blacks in the priesthood relating to Joseph Smith. We don't know why he did that. Joseph F. Smith on becoming president of the church in 1901 faced problems similar to those of his predecessors. In discussing eligibility for the priesthood in 1902, Smith reviewed the rulings, that's Joseph F. Smith, reviewed the rulings of Brigham Young and John Taylor, and once again remarked that Elijah Abel had been ordained at 70 and received his patriarchal blessing in the days of the prophet Joseph Smith. Yay, everything's great. Everything's going to be wonderful now. Joseph F. Smith will take care of it. Not so fast. In 1908, the council heard President Smith recount the story for at least the fourth time, but this time the story was different. Though Elijah Abel had been ordained a 70, Joseph F. Smith said this ordination was declared null and void by the prophet himself. So here comes Joseph F. Smith with a completely new piece of information that he's never mentioned before in any of the other councils that were considering this issue. He's always said, Joseph Smith ordained a black man. It's okay for black people to have the priesthood. I'm not swayed by your late reminiscences, Abraham or Zebedee, about what Joseph Smith told you. I know that he ordained a black man. Therefore, there should be nothing against giving the priesthood to black men. At no time in any of those prior hearings did he say anything about Joseph Smith saying after the ordination of Elijah Abel's that the ordination was declared null and void by the prophet himself. If he had had that information, he would have mentioned it. He didn't mention it, he's making it up. Sorry, just calling it like it is. He flips 180 degrees, he makes it up so that now Elijah Abel and the entire issue regarding Elijah Abel getting the priesthood is finally swept under the rug. Elijah Abel is dead the president of the church, the one person who was the most prominent person in the leadership of the church who was advocating for the position that Joseph Smith taught blacks could have the priesthood has now reversed himself and agreed with everybody else saying that Joseph Smith said that even though a black man was ordained, it was a mistake and that ordination became null and void. Thanks a lot, Joseph F. Smith. Remember the F. I think I know what the F stands for now. So with the entire issue of Elijah Abel out of the way, the prophet Joseph Smith increasingly became the precedent maker for priesthood denial. In other words, now people will start saying that ever since the days of Joseph Smith, this has been the policy of the church. In 1912, George Q. Cannon's secondhand account of the prophet's views was cited in a first presidency letter on church policy. And slightly over a decade later, Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith could write simply but definitively, quote, It is true that the Negro race is barred from holding the priesthood, and this has always been the case. The prophet Joseph Smith taught this doctrine, and it was made known to him. That's what happened after Joseph F. Smith flipped on the priesthood issue by suddenly remembering that after Elijah Abels was ordained, Joseph Smith said that his ordination was null and void. I guess that's why they put him in the seventy. So after having decided finally and conclusively, at least for the time being, that black people could not hold the priesthood, the question arose, how black does a person have to be before they can't hold the priesthood? Different views were put forward and eventually the church came to the conclusion, which Mormons of a certain age like myself remember only too well, and it has to do with if you have just one drop of blood, of Negro blood in you, then you cannot hold the priesthood. So by 1907, the First Presidency and Quorum had reconsidered all of these arguments and ruled that no one known to have in his veins Negro blood, it matters not how remote a degree, can either have the priesthood in any degree or the blessings of the temple of God, no matter how otherwise worthy he may be. During this time period between 1880 and 1920, but mostly in the early 20th century, the idea of the curse of Cain, a lineal kind of curse, fell into disuse largely because of scientific advancements and showing how that just did not make any sense. There was also a sense, I think, among some Mormons that it tended to violate the idea of free agency in Mormonism. Why is it that your agency should be impacted because of what your ancestors did? More attractive to the Mormons then became this idea of the pre-mortal existence and something being done by certain spirits up there that ended up with their being righteous enough to come to the earth to get a body but not righteous enough to get the priesthood. And so this took off, it gained wings for decades and certainly was in full use when I joined the church in the 1970s. The interesting thing about this is that even though I heard fence sitter all the time, there was actually a controversy among Mormons as to what it was that black people did in the pre mortal existence that caused them to be unworthy to hold the priesthood. As we mentioned, It was as early as 1844 that Orson Hyde brought up the idea of a link to the premortal existence. But in 1912, the first presidency with Joseph F. Smith as president wanted to make it clear that there were no neutral people in heaven, but the blacks must have done something otherwise unspecified that caused them to not get the priesthood. So they want to be clear there's no neutrality in heaven going along with what Brigham Young said, right? But there must be something else that they did because it only makes sense in the Mormon context, we just don't know what it was that they did. In spite of Brigham Young's statements to the contrary, the notion that the curse on Negroes was somehow related to their relative neutrality in the war in heaven had gained in popularity. It was evident in B.H. Roberts' article for the Contributor in 1885, and by 1912, the idea was being advanced by many elders as church doctrine in response to an inquiry As to the authority for this belief, the first presidency wrote, There is no revelation, ancient or modern, neither is there any authoritative statement by any of the authorities of the church in support of the idea that the Negroes are those who were neutral in heaven at the time of the great conflict or war, which resulted in the casting out of Lucifer and those who were led by him. The presidency later wrote, our pre-existence, if its history were fully unfolded, would no doubt make the subject much plainer to our understanding than it is shown at present. So there must be something back there that happened. We just don't know what it was, but it was not because of neutrality, because nobody was neutral in the war in heaven. This was the position of the church in 1912. And it was a position that Joseph Fielding Smith, the son of Joseph F. Smith, continued to maintain as he wrote many books and many articles which were read widely by his LDS audience. Joseph Fielding Smith's book, The Way to Perfection, was published in 1931 and it contained by far the most extensive treatment of the Negro policy to date. Apostle Smith became very closely identified with the Negro policy, perhaps more so than any other figure of the 20th century his most significant contribution to the Negro doctrine may well have involved his pre-existence hypothesis. Joseph Fielding Smith was aware that both Brigham Young and Joseph F. Smith had denounced the idea that Negroes were neutral in the war in heaven and that Brigham Young had particularly objected to the implication that the spirits of Negroes were tainted before entering their earthly bodies. On the other hand, Joseph Fielding Smith also knew that other prominent Mormons had felt it necessary to appeal beyond this life to some previous failing for ultimate justification of the present condition of the blacks. The Way to Perfection, that book he wrote, The Way to Perfection, seemingly reconciled these two positions, treading a fine line Joseph Fielding Smith distinguished between the neutrality condemned by Brigham Young and another condition comprised of those, quote, who did not stand valiantly who were almost persuaded, were indifferent, and who sympathized with Lucifer, but did not follow him. It almost sounds to me like he's saying the same thing, but using a lot more words in order to try and make this quote unquote distinction. The sin, whatever that sin might be, the sin of this latter group was not one that merited the extreme punishment, which was inflicted on the devil and his angels. They were not denied the privilege of receiving the second estate, but were permitted to come to the earth life with some restrictions placed upon them. That the Negro race, for instance, have been placed under restrictions because of their attitude in the world of spirits fueled out. So, even though this idea about something being done in premortality was pretty much universal among the Latter day Saints, there was infighting as to what it was they did in the premortal existence. Was it fence sitting that kept being repeated, or was it Joseph Fielding Smith? And his dad's position, Joseph F. Smith's position, that yeah, they did something that would constitute a sin. It wasn't neutrality, but it was some other kind of sin. We just don't know what it was. We just know it wasn't bad enough to go out with the devil and his angels, but it also wasn't good enough for them to be born white. And now that I've taken the time to explain the distinction between those two theories involving the premortal existence, I want to show you how the church in its essay about the priesthood and temple ban uses that in order to make it sound like Joseph Fielding Smith was not a racist. Here it is, it's called Race and the Priesthood. It was originally published December of 2013. Let me find the part about Joseph Fielding Smith. Okay, I found it. Here it is under the section titled, Removing the Restriction, first paragraph halfway down. The curse of Cain was often put forward as justification for the priesthood and temple restrictions. Around the turn of the century, another explanation gained currency. Blacks were said to have been less than fully valiant in the pre-mortal battle against Lucifer and, as a consequence, were restricted from priesthood and temple blessings. Now, we understand from what we've investigated so far that Joseph F. Smith did not believe that to be the case. He believed that there was something bad that blacks had done in the pre-mortal existence, but it was not neutrality in heaven. We also know that Joseph Fielding Smith, the son of Joseph Smith, adopted the exact same theory. There is no neutrality, but there was something else that constituted sin. We just don't know exactly what it was. The thing that happens here is that at this point, there's a footnote, footnote 14, After it said, blacks were said to have been less than fully valiant in the pre mortal battle against Lucifer and as a consequence were restricted from priesthood and temple blessings. Now they're going to quote from Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith. And the way they're going to quote him is what's devious here. The way they're going to quote him as if he believes that this is not doctrine, this is just a policy. Well, the truth is, He does believe it's not the policy of the church, because the policy of the church is that black people did something wrong other than being neutral in heaven. We know that's his position, but listen to how it's quoted here. All right, I'm going to read through this. You be the judge. Around the turn of the century, another explanation gained currency. Blacks were said to have been less than fully valiant in the premortal battle against Lucifer and as a consequence were restricted from priesthood and temple blessings. Footnote 14. Boom. Apostle Joseph Fielding Smith, for example, wrote in 1907 that the belief was quite general among Mormons that the Negro race has been cursed for taking a neutral position in that great contest. Yet this belief he admitted is not the official position of the church, and is merely the opinion of men. Period. End of quote. What book did they get this from? They don't get it from a book. They got it from personal correspondence. Joseph Fielding Smith to Alfred M. Nelson, January 31st, 1907, Church History Library, Salt Lake City. So here's what I object to. The straightforward reading of this, understanding that The essay doesn't go into this infighting about what it was that black people did in the pre-mortal existence that made them unworthy to hold the priesthood. I've done this outside of the essay. The essay doesn't do that. The essay just talks about the neutrality position. And then it quotes from personal correspondence, Joseph Fielding Smith saying, the neutrality position is not the official position of the church. It's merely the opinions of men. The reason I take exception to this is because it is putting this forward as if Joseph Fielding Smith doesn't believe anything any kind of theory involving the premortal existence impacting the ability of black men to hold the priesthood. It sounds like he's totally against any kind of theory for involving the pre-mortal existence, but we know he's not. He's just against that theory. They don't go into the fact he's into the other theory. That's why they have to quote from correspondence instead of from quoting his books like The Way to Perfection, where you could find what it was he really said out there in black and white. No, we're going to go to Personal correspondence to make it look like we've really dug deep for our research in order to portray Joseph Fielding Smith as a man ahead of his time. And of course, it should be no great surprise that eventually the priesthood ban was lifted, since Joseph Fielding Smith in personal correspondence said that this pre-mortal thing, it's not the official position of the church. This is the way the church uses resources and frames issues. In their essays, in order to deceive the reader, it is not giving the full story and by giving half a story, it's making it look like Joseph Fielding Smith was extremely progressive in this regard when he was just as regressive as everybody else in the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. I'm going to end this podcast with, number one, a really good argument that Lester Bush made in his paper. Once again, this is one of those places where he stops being a historian and starts being a bit more of an advocate for his position. And then he ends his paper with several questions, which I think are quite poignant. And we will do those in order. First, his argument, which I think is very good, compelling even, on page 44. One cannot help but wonder why, in view of the hundreds of millions of men who have been denied the priesthood, either because it had not been restored or because of their inaccessibility to the gospel. They live on the other side of the world, right? A relatively insignificant additional handful, that would be black male and Mormon, that's why it's a relatively insignificant addition, why they should be singled out for the same restriction based on the elaborate rationales that have accompanied the Negro policy. Though church leaders have frequently spoken of the millions who have been denied the priesthood because of the curse on Cain, Negroes were really no less likely to receive the priesthood prior to the Restoration than anyone else, nor are they presently any less likely to receive the priesthood than the majority of mankind. Ironically, the few men who have been denied the priesthood only because they were Negroes are the rare blacks who have accepted the gospel. Yet acceptance of the gospel is frequently cited as a sign of good standing in the pre-existence when the individual is not a Negro. So, excellent argument there. And finally, we're going to end with his questions. These are questions he raises for further reflection and investigation at the end of his paper. First, he states, a thorough study of the history of the Negro doctrine still has not been made. In particular, three fundamental questions have yet to be resolved. First, do we really have any evidence That Joseph Smith initiated a policy of priesthood denial to Negroes? These are of course rhetorical questions. The answer is no. He's just shown it in his paper. Second, to what extent did 19th century perspectives on race influence Brigham Young's teachings on the Negro and through him the teachings of the modern church? Answer, a lot, which he just got done demonstrating in his paper. Third, is there any historical basis from ancient texts, here he's talking about the book of Abraham, from ancient texts for interpreting the pearl of great price as directly relevant to the Negro priesthood question, or are these interpretations dependent upon more recent e.g. 19th century assumptions? Here's where he talks about Abraham chapter 1 and says, the only reason you're coming to the conclusion that you're coming to based upon that text is because you already believe in the priesthood ban on blacks. If you did not approach that same text with that same presupposition, you could read it and not come to that conclusion at all. He concludes with this, though. For the faithful Mormon, a fourth question, less amenable to research, also poses itself. Have our modern prophets received an unequivocal verification of the divine origin of the priesthood policy, regardless of its history? The lack of a tangible answer to the fourth question emphasizes even more the need for greater insight into the first three. We have the tools and would seem to have the historical resource material available to provide valid answers to these questions. Perhaps it's time we began. As I say, this article was published in Dialogue August of 1973. A little less than five years later, the priesthood ban was lifted. Thank God for President Spencer W. Kimball, and thank God for Lester E. Bush Jr., and thank God for the editors of Dialogue at the time for having the cojones to publish this article. I mentioned at the beginning that I would be going through a second paper, which was the retrospective. That Lester Bush wrote 25 years after the publication of this particular article. I may have to come back to that at a later time. I did not know I would be spending so much time with the first paper, although I think it's been a very enjoyable and illuminating time, at least for me. I hope it has been for you as well. I want to take this opportunity to thank all the wonderful listeners who have donated and continue to donate to Radio Free Mormon. Your donations do keep literally Radio Free Mormon Broadcasting Behind Enemy Lines. If you have not made a donation yet, but would like to, please go right now to RadioFreeMormon.org and click on the donate button. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. We encourage the recurring monthly donation so we know what we can expect as far as income from month to month and from quarter to quarter. If you prefer to make a one-time donation, that's fine too. If you choose to make a recurring monthly donation, all I ask is $5 a month. That's all I ask, $5 a month on a monthly recurring donation. If you want to do more than that, that is completely up to you. I will not say the nay i've had a great time reading this lester bush article from 1973 this incredibly historically important article titled mormonism's negro doctrine and historical overview well that's about all for tonight until next time this is radio free mormon signing off the air